Well, good morning. I'm delighted to be bringing God's Word to you. Uh, for the latter half of this year, we've been started with Moses' death and entered into the Promised Land, did a period in the Judges. We did a little overview of the Minor Prophets and the Major Prophets. And at last, what it's all been building to is here. The King has arrived. And so before we jump into our text, I want to give you a little logical flow of how I'm going to go through the text. So first in verses 1 through 4, I want us to see the truth of the incarnation and the virgin birth. And then in verses 26 through 37, we're going to see the power of the incarnation. And then in verse 38, we're going to see the response to the incarnation. So with that being said, please stand for the reading of God's word. Remember, these are the very written words of God. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would bless this word. You would add your blessing to it, that you would speak through my words. If I say anything confusing, I pray it would fall away. If I say anything helpful, I pray that your spirit would cause it to stick. Pray for your spirit's conviction and encouragement. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in 1957, the classic film, Twelve Angry Men, came out. And the way the scene is set is there is a jury standing before a judge, and the judge tells them what they are to do. This young man, 16 years of age, has been accused of murdering his father, and so the jury is to deliberate whether they have a reasonable doubt or not whether he did it. If they have a reasonable doubt, they will acquit the boy. If not, he will be sentenced to the death penalty. So the majority of the movie takes place in one room, and uh, as they walk into the room, most of the jurors believe that it's an open and shut case, so they hold a blind vote. Eleven of the votes come up guilty, but one juror, juror number eight, says not guilty. And uh, the rest of the movie is a bunch of 
angry arguing at juror number eight in particular because how could he not see it? It was so obvious. But little by little as the movie goes on, juror number eight patiently and gently shows that a lot of the reasons that the other jurors believe this boy to be uh, guilty has more to do with the fact that they are bringing emotions or racism or other things that are unrelated to the actual case into their decision. And so little by little, he kind of shows how the prosecution's case isn't really uh, something that should convict this boy. But it comes to the end, he basically sways most of the jury, and it comes to the end now, there's 10 people saying not guilty, and two people saying guilty. And one of the jurors, juror number four, he's kind of depicted as this staunch evidentialist, he's got glasses, and he's kind of got this cold and calculated demeanor. And he says, you know, juror number eight, you've done a great job kind of establishing that a lot of what the prosecutor's case is based on isn't, isn't sound. But there's one piece of evidence that really the case stands or falls on. And that's the second witness who testified that she saw the boy stab his father. We have an eyewitness, okay? That's all the evidence we need. Someone saw it, therefore it's as clear as day. And after juror number four says that, some of the other jurors be begin to think, oh, that's right, I forgot about that. And they jump back to the other side, angry arguing, it commences again, and it seems like they're gonna have a hung jury. And so in the midst of this arguing, juror number four takes off his glasses and he begins to rub his nose. And as he's rubbing his nose, one of the jurors looks at him and says, I see you have some indentions on your nose right here. He says, yes, what's your point? He says, well, are those indentions from your glasses? He says, well, of course they're from my glasses. What else would they be from? He says, just pardon me for a second, but I saw those exact same indentions on the nose of the woman who testified. And she didn't wear her glasses when she testified. Why would she not wear her glasses if those indentions could only have come from glasses? They began to think, well, probably because they didn't want the defendants to question the reliability of her eyewitness testimony. Then juror number four says, well, that doesn't mean that she didn't have her glasses on when she saw the boy stab the father. But then juror number eight says, well, she said she was in bed. She heard a noise. She woke up and looked through the window and saw the boy stab the father. But do you sleep with your glasses on? And it stuns juror number four. He begins to think and he realizes that there is a reasonable doubt that this eyewitness testimony is not reliable. The case really did stand or fall on the reliability of the eyewitness testimony. And so ultimately, the movie ends with them acquitting the boy. When we come to our text today, particularly verses 1 through 4, we must ask a similar question. Luke says that the basis for the virgin birth is based upon eyewitness testimony. So is it reliable? Can we trust it? Or is it not? And this that we are coming to is far more important because it has to deal with the truth of Christianity, which is an eternal truth. And so I'm going to give you at least two reasons why I think we can trust Luke's account, that he is a detailed historian and that he really did examine um, eyewitnesses that were close up to the case. And so if you uh, look at the text, you'll see in verse 1 it says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us." Luke, who is a traveling companion of Paul, he wrote, both, he wrote both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. We're told in Acts uh, 16 and, and that Luke is traveling with Paul. And then in Acts 21, we're told that Paul and Luke and his companions come to Jerusalem to talk to James, the brother of the Lord. And it's very likely that this 
is when Luke would have either interviewed James, the brother of the Lord, concerning our birth stories today, or even interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so this testimony that we're getting from Luke is reliable because he says, I've gone and talked to the eyewitnesses that have seen this happen. This isn't just a, a silly fable or a silly myth. Okay? Another reason from the text that we can trust the testimony of Luke is what I've already read, this verse, verse 1. Many scholars believe that verse 1 is an illusion, that Luke is alluding to uh, the manual of ancient healing arts by a man named Hippocrates. Maybe you've heard of the Hippocratic Oath. Hippocrates is considered to be the father of modern medicine, and he says something very similar to what Luke says. Hippocrates believed that science and medicine should be based on detailed observation and not silly superstition. And so, because Luke is alluding to Hippocrates, and I hope I've said in Colossians 4.14, we find out that Luke himself is a physician. So Luke is kind of channeling the same type of precision that a physician would by saying, as a physician should closely observe the facts to come up with a proper diagnosis and prescription, so will I go about this research so that you may know with certainty that this isn't based on superstition, it's not a mere fable, but this is real. It's true. And so it is with that that we move in to this miraculous story. And ultimately, what Luke is trying to say to Theophilus, who's probably this wealthy patron that was uh, helping Paul and supporting Paul on his missionary journeys, the reason he says all this has been written is what? Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been spoken. So when we step into this, what may sound like a crazy story, we can have certainty that it is true. And since it is true, we must be people who rightly respond to the power of the incarnation. So let's step into verse 26. We see in verse 26, it says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Again, we see he's concerned with literal history. This is the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, who was a barren woman, um, who the angel Gabriel appeared to and told her, you will have a son named John, John the Baptist. And so she has a miraculous birth. So it's in the sixth month of her pregnancy with John that the angel appears to him. So I want you to see that there's a literal aspect to this account. But what I also want to show you is that our text today doesn't just show us that it's literal history, but the history that we're reading today has a literary component to it. Why? Because the author, ultimately, of this history is God. And so what we're going to see is that God's power is displayed in the incarnation because he has, throughout redemptive history, been preparing his people for the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And so there's been allusions and prefigurements and prophecies and preparations being made for the birth of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to uh, verse 27 and verse 34, verse 36, over and over again, Luke keeps saying that this story is very similar to other miraculous birth stories. Maybe you'll remember um, the story of Sarah and Abraham. Abraham is promised by God that he will have an heir and that that heir will be the father of many nations and that Abraham will be the father of uh, children that number the, the, the amount of the stars in the heavens. 
But after time goes by, that promise doesn't seem to come to fruition. So Sarah and Abraham begin to have doubts. And so they decide, well, maybe it will be through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. So they give Hagar to Abraham and Hagar conceives and has a son named Ishmael. But God says it's not through Ishmael that this promise will come, but through Sarah, not through Hagar. And so evidently, one day, Abraham is sitting out by a tree and the Lord appears to him with two other angels. And Abraham, recognizing it's the Lord, he says, Lord, if I found favor with you, would you please uh, allow me to make you a meal at our tent at home? So Abraham runs ahead of the Lord. He tells Sarah, hey, hurry, we need, uh, we need to prepare a meal for the Lord. He's coming. So Sarah goes into the tent and she's preparing. The Lord eventually comes back and he asks Abraham, where's Sarah? And he says, she's in the tent. And in response to that, the Lord says to Abraham, well, I want you to know I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, Sarah hears this through the tent and laughs to herself. It's a laugh of disbelief. She doesn't believe that that's possible because she's barren. She's too old. Surely that can't be the case. The Lord, either through his omnipotence or, or because he heard her through the tent, says this to Abraham. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The Greek translation of the Old Testament translates it this way. Shall anything be impossible with the Lord? Sound familiar? And so, again, we see even in this text, right, there's a, there's a prefigurement or a preparation that the true seed of Abraham that will really cause these promises to be yes and amen will come through a miraculous birth. Ultimately, Isaac is born, and he proves to be this child of the promise. But it's interesting that throughout redemptive history, in the patriarchal period, in the time of the judges, in the precursor to the Davidic dynasty, it's sung about in the Psalms, it's prophesied about in the prophets, there's this idea that God brings miraculous deliverers and mighty deliverers through these miraculous birth stories. And so it's, it seems odd and almost interesting that he would highlight this kind of weakness of a virgin and this weakness of a, a barren woman until you recognize that this has been a theme throughout redemptive history. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, also was barren. Isaac prayed. She conceives and gives birth to Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob and Esau uh, are twins. Esau is rejected. Jacob becomes the father of the 12 tribes. Jacob has a couple wives, but the one he favors is Rachel. Rachel, again, is barren. They pray. She gives birth to Joseph. We see this theme again in the Judges. Maybe you're familiar with the character Samson, who's a great and mighty and powerful figure. He himself is birthed from a barren woman. There's probably one in particular that you remember, which is Hannah. In 1 Samuel 1, Hannah is married to a man named Elkanah, and Elkanah has two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Peninnah had many sons, Hannah had none. And so uh, Peninnah would kind of provoke and mock Hannah. And so Hannah would be very grieved by this. And so she would go up to the temple and pray to the Lord and ask for a son. It gets to the point where she's so grieved that she vows that if the Lord gives her a son, she will give her child to the Lord all the days of his life. And so Eli, a judge and a priest, sees Hannah crying and he says, how long will you go on being drunk? Put, on, put your wine away from you. So he thinks Hannah, because she's so distraught, she, he thinks she's drunk. But she explains to him her situation, and Eli then immediately kind of apologizes, says, well, go in peace, and I pray that the God of Israel will grant your petition that you've made to him. And so eventually, Hannah gives birth to Samuel. 
We are told that Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and with men. Interesting in Luke 2, that exact, almost that exact phrase is said of Jesus, that he grew in favor and wisdom with the Lord. And Samuel is ultimately the prophetic catalyst that God uses to bring about the Davidic dynasty because he is the one that anoints David. And so time and time again throughout history, we see that God uses these miraculous birth stories to set the stage for his deliverers. We've already read in the prophets uh, from Isaiah 9 what this deliverer will be like. Well, we're told in Isaiah 7:14 that the true deliverer, the one that will finally deliver us from our, our sins, shall come from a virgin. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Interestingly, even in the text right before ours, Elizabeth, who is barren, begins to set the stage that the extraordinary deliverer that we have in Jesus is being prepared for and prophesied and prefigured. Elizabeth has John the Baptist. We're told that John the Baptist will be a great prophet before the Lord. Jesus even says of John the Baptist that he says, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So when we come back to our text with the Virgin Mary, we have all of this redemptive historical context backing it. And so the Lord speaks uh, through Gabriel to Mary, and he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And so Gabriel appears to Mary. He's saying, We recognize, God Almighty recognizes that you are low in terms of social status, that she is weak in terms of physical appearance, but she has found favor with God. Why? Because God is trying to highlight that he sees the lowly, and it is through a virgin girl, who's probably 15, 16 years old, that he will bring about this great promise. And so ultimately, we see the power of God displayed in the incarnation because he's tying all of history together. And you can really see this come together in the titles that are given to Jesus. All right, it says that they will call his name Jesus. Jesus means Savior. It was said of Samson, by the way, that when he would be born, he would begin to save Israel. So what we see in Jesus is he's a better Savior and deliverer than Moses, than Joshua, than Samson, and the judges. He says, Gabriel says, he will be great greater than John the Baptist, and will be called Son of the Most High, and Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He'll be a better Samuel, a better David, a better Solomon, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It seems intentional almost that, that all these occurrences of these miraculous birth stories are being singled out, that Jesus is the real fulfillment of these. And so then we see in verse 34, Mary is Shocked by this, how is this going to happen since I'm a, I'm a virgin, she says. So this is a miraculous birth. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. So the Holy Spirit coming upon her and overshadowing her, this is an allusion to, uh, in the Old Testament, when the tabernacle was built, God's presence came and overshadowed the tabernacle. Or maybe you're familiar in... Uh, the Gospels, when Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration and reveals his true glory, we're told that the Shekinah glory cloud of God overshadows them. And so, again, the power of the incarnation is being displayed in that God is transcendent. 
He is in control of all of history, that his presence is descending upon Mary, and there's a glory that is being demonstrated in the power of this work. But interestingly, maybe one of the biggest demonstrations of God's power is is found in verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with, with her who was called barren. And he says, this will happen for nothing will be impossible with God. So it's as if he's saying, actually, the, the greatest way that you can know that God is, is powerful and is in control is that I've caused the barren woman to give birth and the virgin to give birth. And if you really begin to understand what the virgin birth is, right, it's not just that God is doing a miracle, but it's God himself, who is in control of all of history, is stepping into history. And so the virgin birth is not just a miraculous birth of a random person, but it's the second person of the Trinity becoming man. And so essentially what God is saying, to show you that nothing is impossible with me, I will become a baby. Now, I find that to be fascinating because if I wanted to prove that nothing was impossible, like let's say if, if I were this great you know, figure and I, and I had great power, if I really wanted to prove to you know, people that served me that I was all powerful, I'd probably come down from the heavens like Superman and I would defeat my enemies you know, easily with the blink of an eye, you know, showing my might, showing my power, showing my speed, and, and it, there would be no context. Like, would be no competition. I would be unbeatable. No one would be able to challenge me. I would have proven that nothing would be impossible for me. But that's not what God does. God says, in order to show you that nothing is impossible with me, I will become a baby. Okay, how can I illustrate this? I think the best way to illustrate this is to think about the story Lord of the Rings. J.R. Tolkien J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a story called Lord of the Rings. Most of you, I'm sure all of you, are very familiar with it. But in it, there is the great and terrible evil Sauron who's created this powerful ring that corrupts people. And essentially what you need to know is that this evil ring essentially falls into the hands of this humble little hobbit named Frodo. And hobbits throughout Lord of the Rings are depicted as small, mundane, simple creatures that love peace and love to party, and they're harmless and helpless, and they could, they could not defend themselves whatsoever at all. Well, eventually Frodo figures out from this great and powerful wizard who's uh, benevolent and kind named Gandalf that this ring that Frodo has has to be destroyed because it's the great ring of Sauron. And the only way for it to be destroyed is to be thrown into the fire from which it was forged. And that fire is in the evil lair where Sauron's uh, influence is most prevalent. And so Frodo, when he realizes this, says, please take it, Gandalf. You must take it. I, I don't want it. I, I, I'm giving it to you. But Gandalf says something very interesting. He shouts out, Don't tempt me, Frodo. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe. Understand, Frodo, I would use this ring from a desire to do good, but through me it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine. So ultimately, if you know the story, the hobbits are the ones that have to take the ring to Mordor. And so what's the purpose of this? Why isn't it the powerful ones that are going into the evil lair? Why is it the humble and the mundane and the harmless and the helpless ones? Why are they the ones that are going to destroy the ring? Well, theologian and writer Peter Kraft writes this. This is what Tolkien is getting at. He says this, evil is limited to power. It cannot use weakness. It is limited to pride. It cannot use humility. It is limited to inflicting suffering and death. It cannot use suffering and death. It is limited to selfishness. It cannot use selflessness. So this This is the gem of our text. How does Advent, 
How does Christmas, how does God becoming a baby teach us that nothing is impossible with God? It teaches us that God can do what evil can't. God is not limited to power. He uses weakness. Do you remember Jesus says to Paul, when Paul has a, a, a thorn in his side, we don't know if that's a spiritual ailment or a physical ailment, but Paul asks three times, Lord, will you take this from me? And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In response to this, Paul writes, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may, not, may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We have a God who can do the impossible because he is not limited to pride. He uses humility. He is not limited to inflicting suffering and death, but he uses suffering and death for his glory and our good. God is not limited to selfishness, but he can use selflessness. I think nowhere is this more beautifully articulated than in Paul's letter to the Philippians, where he says, let each of us look not to our own interests, but to the interests of the others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he took the form of a servant, and he emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, and has uh, therefore that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus this Lord. So isn't it amazing that in our text today we see that God is powerful because he's control of all history, but we also see that God is powerful because he enters into history. We see that he's powerful because of his sovereignty, but we also see that he's powerful because of his intimacy. Truly, you have a God that, tr that you can trust and that sees you. He lifts the fallen, he heals the wounded, he sees the brokenhearted. So then, the question is, since the incarnation is true, it means that we really do have a God that we can pray to that can do the impossible. So how should we respond? Well, we should respond exactly like Mary. What does Mary say? She hears this and she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Because we have a God who does the impossible, we can serve him and love him without fear. And there are things in this life that we don't understand. He asks us to do things sometimes that in his word may not seem like they're always advantageous for us. It may seem dis, like a disadvantage sometimes to follow his word. It might, you know, it might hurt our job career or it might hurt our relationship. But because we know that nothing is impossible with God and that he is working all things for his glory, we can know that this is going to work out for our good. And then finally, we can have a faith-filled confidence that God is good because he can do the impossible. So why would we not pray to him and ask our loving Father who can do the impossible to help us? We should run to him, we should serve him, we should love him because truly nothing is impossible with God. Therefore, we should respond just like Mary who said, let it be to me according to to your word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you that we have a God who can do the impossible. Lord, it truly is amazing that you are the author of creation, the, cre the writer of history, 
And it's amazing to see how it all fits together in the person and work of Jesus. That you really have shamed the wisdom of the world by showing us that you are able to use weakness. And that your power is made perfect in our weakness. So I pray that we would recognize our human frailty and our weakness. We would depend on you. We would live lives of trust and humility. Shower your grace upon us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.